because if the audience is roaring with laughter and you've got a line of dialogue coming up that is, you know, imperative to the plot, uh, they need to hear it. That is one aspect of where the audience is helpful, but, you know, that is a huge one. It's when it comes to comedy, which is, you know, they are part of the, the instrumentation of, of the melody of comedy, right? Like, they are the percussion. Hi, I'm Joanne Wallace, and this is the Blythe Festival Podcast. Today we're speaking with playwright Matt Murray, whose new show, The Chronicles of Sarnia, premiered this summer at the Blythe Festival. You just heard him speaking about how he views the audience, that's you, as an integral part of writing any new work, especially a comedy. Stay with us for more insights into Matt's work, find out what inspired him to write a comedy set in his hometown of Sarnia, and why he thinks Blythe audiences are the best in the business. All this coming up on the Blythe Festival podcast. So Matt, you grew up in Sarnia. How does a kid in Sarnia get into theater and have this long 20-year career as a musical theater artist on stages here and in the States and then segue into writing plays and musicals? Well, I got bit by the bug at a really early age, I think around 12. Um, Both my parents uh, were quite involved in theater, certainly had tremendous interest and love for it. Uh, My mother, a local playwright, and my father was uh, also really involved with Sarnia Little Theater and also the lawyer plays. Um, He was an attorney and he would uh, really help champion, I think it was every other year they would do them or every third year. And all the lawyers in the community would do a comedy or a play. And it was always a big fundraising thing. And so I was exposed to it all really early. I think the thing that really, really uh, grabbed me, though, was when my parents took me to see Les Miserables, and I was just blown away. I'd never seen anything like that, and I distinctly remember the car ride home saying, I think that's what I want to do. And how did you get started writing? Like, how did you decide that it was time to switch? So my first foray into playwriting was uh, my mother was a local playwright in Sarnia, And I ended up finding an old play of hers, uh, a play that had had some local success back in the day and pulled it out of a drawer, a literal drawer. uh, And it was a story about two sisters uh, dealing with the progression of their mother's Alzheimer's. And it was very funny and very touching. And I read it and I thought, this is a good play. And so I said to my mom, hey, what do you think about me entering the Toronto Fringe Festival? And if I get picked, you know, I take a stab at maybe updating this play a little bit and lo and behold, ended up getting a spot in the fringe production. And so it was a really unusual and amazing situation where um, I kind of pulled my mother out of retirement, so to speak, and her and I um, reworked this play and the play ended up being a tremendous success at the fringe festival. We had a sold out run. We were picked as best of fringe and it, I think that play has since gone on to have like nine or 10 productions outside of that. So that was my first into it. And then a couple of years later, I wrote a play called Myth of the Ostrich. And once again, 
I was fortunate enough to get a spot in the Toronto Fringe. That too was a very big success, but that one was picked up by the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre in Winnipeg, which is their big regional. And so that that was the thing that galvanized me and, and, and kind of gave me the confidence to keep going. That's a great place to segue into my next question, because as I said, we're here talking today about your new play, Chronicles of Sarnia, that's opening on the newly reopened Memorial Hall stage here at the Blythe Festival. Can you start by telling us, what is this story about? So the story of Chronicles of Sarnia uh, is really based around a group of people gathering in a church basement to talk about what should go in a soon-to-be-buried 100-year time capsule. Now, the event is organized by one woman, Erin, who is a high school history teacher, and... um, She's expecting a huge turnout and equal enthusiasm for this project. However, things take a very quick and comedic turn. And I will not give anything more away, but things do not go the way she'd hoped. So what I'm always interested in this, what inspired you to write this particular story? I have been working full time as a writer, uh, predominantly musicals for the last, I guess, seven or eight years. and. I was introduced to Gil Garrett, the artistic director of Blythe Festival, and uh, we started having a chat just around, you know, what my experience was growing up in Sarnia, which of course is not far from Blythe, and, um, you know, what life was like. And I started talking about stories from back in the day and that Sarnia is such an interesting place. It has such a rich history. And, you know, Gil gave me a very enthusiastic yet gentle nudge. He's like, you know, you might want to lean into that. And maybe there's a play there. And I had been cooking a title in my head for a while, uh, which is Chronicles of Sarnia, which is, of course, a play on the iconic Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, I didn't have a story to go with it. So I'd remembered reading about a hundred year time capsule being discovered um, at at an old high school in Sarnia. And I just thought, oh, that's interesting. I remember when I was a kid, seeing an, a time capsule unearthed. And uh, there's something about that thing. How do you represent something in a specific period of time and uh, to show people in the future what the place was like? And that, that was really the start of the idea. And I just let my imagination go. And here we are. Yeah, I think that our audiences will really enjoy going along for the ride because the characters come to an interesting conclusion about what is the most meaningful thing they do. to put into that time capsule. They do. So yeah, it's a really great story. I, I loved watching it unfold. Thank you. Let's talk about this inaugural production, because this is the first time anybody has uh, been privileged to see this new work. And you have a dream team. You have Miles Potter directing. You have uh, Severn Thompson in the lead role. And... Blythe favorite Mark Crawford playing a hilarious version of of Marcus. So what has it been like for you watching your work come to life in the hands of these really gifted artists? Once Miles was confirmed, I was just elated. I really was, but I was also so excited to see, you know, what incredible cast he was going to assemble. Miles is someone who's had an incredible career and really, you know, I think the best of the best know and love working with him. So, yeah. And he did not disappoint in that cast. Uh, You know, as you said, we have Severin Thompson, we have Mark Crawford. We also have the dynamic Amy Keating, 
who I've been a huge fan of in the city from afar. Mm-hmm. We have Murray Furrow and we also have Sam Malkin. So it's it's really an incredible group of people uh, and not just on stage. I mean, off stage with Steve Lucas, you know, and, and Laura, our costume designer. And it's just, um, there is real A-list hands on this. And uh, I'm thrilled and frankly honored to have such capable and talented hands um, bringing this piece to life. It's just one of the greatest things about Blythe that it's this little theater but everybody in the business knows uh, the quality of work that can be produced here. So people are anxious to work here. Blythe has always acknowledged and understood that its audiences are a big part of the success of any show that appears on its stages. And this audience is famously attentive and responsive and really bringing their best selves to any performance they come to see. They don't shy away from tough topics, and they and they also don't hold back when they see something funny. So could you comment on how that audience reaction works as a kind of a silent partner in the development of the piece and in bringing it to life? Absolutely. I so appreciate you uh, using the term silent partner because I always feel that Uh, very strongly that the audience really is the kind of unnamed collaborator in the creation of, of a piece of theater, especially comedy. Yeah. Um, Comedy is, it is a, it's, it's, it's tough to create, not, not in the execution of the script, but, you know, really trying to anticipate in advance what is going to land, how it's going to land. Is it going to land consistently? You know, will this joke or jokes, um, you know, always provide that same sort of comedic punch from audience to audience to audience. And, you know, that is where so much learning comes in for me as a writer. Even yesterday, I'll just use an example, um, during, you know, one of our previews, um, there was a specific joke in the second act that, I always thought in my mind rhythmically would land like the punchline was the third line in the joke. And I realized yesterday, oh no, the punchline is the first line. And in fact, the laugh rolled so much over the next two lines that um, we ended up cutting them in notes. So, you know, when the cast is on stage, they have a tough job, right? Because in comedy, there is so much audience reaction. Yes. And their job is to be listening to each other, being present in their own moment, but also having one ear on the audience. Because if the audience is roaring with laughter and you've got a line of dialogue coming up that is, you know, imperative to the plot, uh, they need to hear it. So they need to know how to hold in that moment. So, but to give the illusion they're not holding for the laugh, right? And so it's a real tricky thing. And that is where the audience, you know, that is one aspect of where the audience is helpful. But, you know, that is a huge one. It's when it comes to comedy, which is, you know, they are part of the the instrumentation of of the melody of comedy, right? Like they are the percussion. They are like, it is really like putting a new instrument in the mix of an arrangement and having to accommodate it into um, the flow and the sound of the show. I love the way you characterize the audience as an, as an instrument. 
But let me ask you this. When you're writing comedy, because you've written other plays, other comedies, musical comedies, do you write something that's funny for you? Or do you think of your audience and what might be funny to them? I think it's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would say that I, um, I definitely write stuff that makes me laugh. Um, I always, you know, I see myself very much as like my tastes comedically are, I don't want to say run of the mill because that doesn't, that doesn't sound very, very <laughs> confident, but you know, my, my, my largest influences growing up were the sitcoms of the 1990s. I mean, I was a massive fan of Cheers and Seinfeld and Golden Girls and, you know, those sort of classic comedies that were, let's face it. I mean, the sitcom itself was born of live theater. Yeah. You know, I mean, that 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 is why it was created. It was to give the at-home audience the feeling of being in a live theater. That's why there was a studio audience. And even the way that it is shot is to very much give the audience at home a similar perspective as if they were sitting in a live theater, right? So that was a huge influence of mine growing up. And that's what really made me laugh. And all of those things were incredibly popular. So I think for myself, whenever I'm creating something it's not that it's, I'm trying to emulate a sitcom episode. It's just, you know, what they had in common was they had jokes on the page. They were constructed in a way that um, carried the audience along and always reminded them that they were watching a comedy. So I'm really excited when I'm working on something. You know, when I look at a page of dialogue, I want to make sure that within that page, there are at least two or three jokes. Now, Will those jokes land as I hoped? That's not always a guarantee, but they're definitely things that I see as being, quote unquote, jokes on the page. And those jokes on a page are, uh, they're almost like a cue for the audience. Like, here's a, here's a part you can play. That's right. And, you know, just, just running with the analogy of the, uh, you know, the arrangement or the musical orchestration, right? It's just, yeah, I want that, that musical swell there in that moment you know like I, I think it's important for the audience like you know I think when people sit down in a theater especially when they're going to see a comedy it's our job to take care of the audience you know I want to take them on a ride I want I want them to be able to relax and have fun I want to make sure that they're when they leave the place they're thinking consciously or not you know I'm really glad I came. Yeah. And I think, you know, so that's why I always consider them very much in my development. You're listening to the Blythe Festival podcast. I'm Joanne Wallace, and today I'm speaking with playwright Matt Murray. Please check out our other episodes in this series. We have a two-part interview with artistic director Gil Garrett about his brilliant new treatment of James Rainey's trilogy about the troubled Donnelly family. And coming soon, we'll have an interview with playwright Andrew Moody, whose play The Real McCoy rounds out the Blythe season when it opens later this month. And now, let's get back to my conversation with Matt Murray. Blythe Festival is rigorously dedicated to commissioning new work. It's, it's at the center of their mandate. Uh, and not only do they commission writers like you, but they follow through by workshopping it and then putting it on the stage so that you can get to that final piece of working with the audience. Um, 
And I I do want to say that there is no exaggeration to say that this is only possible through the support of the festival's members and donors. These are ordinary people who see the value in telling these stories and making them available for their friends, their neighbors, people across the country, around the world, and future generations. So that's just a little shout out to Blythe donors and members. Thank you so much for what you do for us. Uh, It is your generosity that, that helps people like Matt create new and wonderful work. But Matt, coming back to you, as a writer, um, what does it mean to you to have this kind of support, this kind of backing in your work? Being a writer can be very challenging. Uh, it's definitely a, um, it is a job or, or a pursuit that is like heavily reliant on, um, you know, gumption and sweat equity and, you know, a real passion for it. In many ways, it feels to me as a calling. Uh, it's sort of, I can't, certainly at this point, uh, being as far into it, I can't imagine doing anything else. And so, you know, and that can be challenging at times. So to have people I have not met, people I may not meet in this process, um, quietly sitting on the sidelines and encouraging people like me and giving me financial support. Cause let's face it, you know, you got to pay the bills. Like artistic pursuits are great and they're noble, but you know, life is life. And you know, the factors that I think burn people out in this, um, it's not enthusiasm for the craft. It's the, it's the life stuff that comes crashing down around it. That makes it more and more difficult. I think we've probably lost a lot of artists and writers and creators to just the realities of life. So whenever you're given an opportunity from the outside to support you, not only is it helpful, it also, it gives you that little boost of encouragement that not only are your pursuits worthwhile, they're recognized by people and they're appreciated. And I think that's, that's an incredibly special thing and one I would never, ever take for granted. Well, thank you, Matt, on behalf of all the donors and members of Blythe who are probably really chuffed to hear your thanks. I was wondering, another thing Blythe does is they're specifically dedicated to capturing the stories of rural Ontario and uh, rural Ontario and, and Huron County, southwestern Ontario, and of course, Sarnia is part of that catchment. So what are your thoughts on why that's important? Why is it important that we gather these stories as opposed to a story you might find set in Toronto or Vancouver or Calgary? I think audiences are, you know, very sophisticated in their ability to go to see all different types of theater, right? And get something out of it. But there is something particularly special about sitting in in a theater and watching a story on stage And even though we're from different walks of life and we've all had different experiences, we can just see ourselves in it. It's like our own lives are being mirrored back to us. And that's what I think great theater does. I think it gives the audience an opportunity to see themselves in it in some way. I think people do want to sit in a theater and think, wow, that was my story. Um, I think coming to see something like Chronicles of Sarnia, and I'm really, really hoping a lot of Sarnians make the trip because I think what they're going to see 
in it is obviously, you know, all the obvious things like the references to the community, you know, like, like famous figures who have come from it and all of that sort of stuff that will be fun. But what I think it's going to signal to them is, um, wow, we're, we're seen. Yeah. We're part of this country too. Yeah. We're part of it. Like we, we are being recognized in this and, you know, I think that's what we all crave on some level, you know? Even to be sitting here and having this conversation, you know, people want to be seen. They, they, they want to feel like their lives mean something and that they matter. And if we can do that on a stage in some small way, I think it's crucial. And I, and I, I think that's probably a huge part of why Blythe Festival is in its 49th season. Yeah. It's resonating with people. I think there's also something in, um, you know, Canada's a big country and we've got a small population spread across this really thin line, and we have regional differences, um, but we also have a, a sense of we are all one people on one hand. But on the other hand, because we have these different sort of experiences and lives, when you put up a show that's about growing up in small town Sarnia or a show about uh, farmhands dealing with the Pigeon Ponzi scheme, which is another famous play mm-hmm. that was uh, on the Blythe Festival stage, um, it allows people like from from different walks of life, a, a sort of a door or a window into each other's lives and creates a kind of community. I couldn't agree more. And also, you know, what's exciting about it as well is when people from outside those communities come in mm-hmm. and see relatable human stories, you know, whether it be family dynamic or economic struggles or things like that, like it, it really can be a real... Um, uh, an equalizer in many ways. Yeah, and is, pe- people are going to see that in, in Sarnia too because all of these characters are, we, as we get to know them, as the story unfolds, we find that they are dealing with these, you know, universal absolutely. issues that everybody and, deals with. And we're not, um, we're really not all that different from each other. This has been such an enjoyable conversation, Matt, and I really want to thank you for joining us. Before I let you go... Uh, I would like to ask you, what's next for you? You've been writing a lot and watching your work come to life on stage. Are you going to get a chance to take a break or have you got something exciting in the hopper for us? I am very much hoping to take a break. Um, I, I, I'm i going to go back to Toronto once we open Chronicles. Um, and then I am going to try to relax, which, see, that's where the sitcom laugh track would come in because I'm not great at that. Um, but I, you know, I do, I do want to take a bit of a break and just to sort of let my mind just relax a little bit. Um, and then, you know, we've got, uh, Maggie is currently playing at the Charlottetown festival out on PEI and then it's moving, uh, to the Savoy theater in Cape Breton. So I'll be going out there uh, to help with the transfer of the piece there. Um, and then beyond that, you know, it's really, it's just, I've got a couple irons in the fire and nothing I can talk about just yet, but I have some really exciting stuff coming up in the future and, you know, I'll just continue to generate new work and also keep working on the stuff I'm creating, but I'm, I'm going to keep writing. And, you know, as long as I keep getting opportunities and audience support and of course you know donor support i i hope to just keep doing this as long as i can 
You've been listening to playwright Matt Murray here on the Blythe Festival podcast. Check out our other episodes in this series. These include conversations with artistic director Gil Garrett and playwright Andrew Moody. And later this fall, we'll have an episode for you about a Huron County Christmas Carol, a very funny rural Ontario-specific retelling of this beloved story, returning to Blythe for the first time since COVID closed our theatres. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends and share it all over your social media. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, consider leaving us a review and a rating. Finally, if you have a private comment about this or anything else, please reach out to us on whatever channel is most comfortable for you. Connecting with our community is what Blythe is all about, so don't be shy. You'll find links and contact information in the show notes below. I'm Joanne Wallace. Until next time, thanks for listening. 